Welcome you to the service this morning. If you're glad to be here, give us a good rousing amen. Well, I like amens. We don't have to do that again. Oh, wait a minute. I, I don't mean you're not supposed to say amen anymore. <laughs> like amens, that means I agree. I have preached to people that didn't agree. <laughs> and they didn't say amen. But it is a blessing to be here. If you're a member of the church, you're right where you're supposed to be. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all the people, all the members would show up one, just one service. I pastored 19 years and I just wanted one service where all the members showed up. I never did get that. Now I'm just hoping they'll be in heaven. All, I'm talking about all of them in heaven. If you're a visitor today, God bless you. You didn't have to be here, but I'm glad you came. And let me say this. If you are a first time visitor, please come back and hear the pastor. I'm a visitor here myself, so don't judge the church by me. You come back and hear the pastor. And I'm sure you'll be blessed. And if you're not saved this morning... I want you to know that you're a special guest. You are among friends. You're among people that love you more than anybody in the world loves you and cares for you, not only in time, but eternity. They care for you. They want you to be saved. They want you to cross that line that'll take you out of darkness and death into the light and life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is not an exaggeration. That's exactly the way it is. My wife is not with me on this trip, and uh, she's praying for the meeting. I've told you many times she's a praying lady, and she's praying for you. She knows if I'm preaching to you, you're going to need prayer, so she's praying for you. But she is a praying lady, and she misses being here. She sends her regards to you folks. She loves you folks and um, always enjoys being here. And the preacher gave me permission to mention the books, and I'll do that as briefly as I can. I don't want to bore you with it. Uh, if you don't have the book on Scripture memorization, you ought to get it. It will teach you how to memorize Bible verses by two different methods that do work if you work them. And I'm not just, it's not just somebody's idea, folks. They worked where I pastored years ago. And uh, this is Bible, this is volume one of a full volume set, Bible Truth on the World, the Flesh, and the Devil. If you're a Christian, you're going to have to deal with that. That is your triune enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Volume two deals with heaven and hell. Volume three deals with backsliding and chastening. And uh, volume three deals with, uh, volume, correction, yeah, volume three deals with backsliding and chastening. And uh, volume four deals with submission and rebellion. This is one of two volumes, uh, Bible Truth on 275 subjects. Bible questions answered on 275 subjects. You know, if you get these, like most people do, and keep them in your house, when you have visitors show up, something's going to come up that you want to discuss. Most likely, you can open this book and it's going to be in there and some commentary on it. Uh, Bible Truth on the Book of Nehemiah deals with the nine factors that were involved in the completion of the wall in such a phenomenally short time. Uh, Bible Truth from Jude is a verse-by-verse -verse commentary. I found 20 cardinal doctrines in the book of Jude. In that little 25-verse book, isn't it amazing what God can cram into a book? Bible Truth on Calvinism. If you listen, if you don't know anything about Calvinism, you ought to get this book. It's written in practical terms. When you finish reading this, you'll know what Calvinism is all about. And uh, you won't have to find a commentary to find out what the commentator said. Amen. Uh, I'll read some commentaries and I'll find a commentary to find out what that commentator said, but you won't have to do that with this. When you read this, you'll know what you've read. You'll have the right idea and concept of Calvinism, and you'll know that you're against it. It's weird and bizarre. Bible Truth from Galatians is a verse-by-verse -verse commentary on all six chapters. Bible promises for Bible believers, 100 subjects in which God makes special promises to Bible believers. Bible Truth on Tongues answers all those unanswered questions about tongues. You know where I got the answers? From the Bible. God never left anything hanging, folks. 
Bible Truth for Young Men. By the way, these are the last books I've written. There's four of them here. Uh, Bible Truth for Young Men is uh, actually uh, Solomon 22 times said my son and gave him advice. And that's basically what this is about. Every young man needs to read this book. Every young man needs to read this. And there's good philosophy in there and theology for anyone, but every young man. Uh, this is the Bible Truth on the Home. And uh, I mentioned something about this in Sunday school this morning. I need, I need, to, I need to show you something in here. Yeah, that is if I can get to it. Um, it deals with God's plan for marriage, the origin, the reason, the maintenance of it, the, and the husband's responsibilities and the wife's. It also deals with the uh, plan of the parent's responsibility. And here's what it deals with. Every child must learn submission. Every child has a human nature. Every child needs correction. Every child needs love. Every child will live forever. Every child needs training. Every child needs protection. Uh, every child needs devotions. Every child can bring joy to his parents. Did you hear that? Every child can. Every child is responsible for obedience. Uh, every couple that has children yet growing up needs this. You know why? Because the information came out of the Bible. It's what God said. And uh, this is another one based on 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, where Paul mentions 20 things that would characterize the last days of the last days, where we are right now. You can read this and you can recognize what's happening in our world today. And the fact that it was no surprise to God, God put it in the book. Um, and here's another one. Uh, this is the Bible truth from Proverbs. And uh, my wife and I have read the book of Proverbs only God knows how many times. And I've read it more times, of course, than we have together. But um, I extracted 40 subjects from Proverbs and enlarged upon those. 40 different subjects. Bible truth from Proverbs. There's a wealth of information in that book. And uh, so I want to mention those. I probably will not mention those again this week. But if you're interested in those books individually or as a bundle, there's a bundle price on them. I'll see you at the book table about that. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians chapter 1. It's not my intention to preach a long sermon this morning. I'd, I'd, rather, I'd like to preach 30 minutes. I've never done that, but I'd like to do that sometime. Uh, maybe I can do that today. Uh, I'll make a stab at it. How's that? And uh, I want to encourage you about the services tonight. Uh, please do not disappoint me. Uh, I preached in a church a while back where the, the, I mean, the house was full. There, there might have been a seat here or there, but I mean, it was full. Came back that night, there's barely enough people to preach to. That is not a good testimony. Uh, do you love God enough to stay in, in, to come to Sunday night? Amen. And Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday night and Friday night. Do you love God that much? By the way, if you can, and don't, it's because you don't love Him that much. That's not my sermon, but it's the truth. Amen. One of, the, one of the saddest things that's taking place in God's churches in America is empty pews and seats on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. And America's on its way to hell, folks, at a pace that make our fastest jet look like a tortoise. And it's mainly because God's people are becoming relaxed and content and unintense. We need to be in more intense about serving God. Please come back tonight. See, I can preach better if you're here. And if I have a struggle tonight and you're not here, I'm going, you, guess who's going to get blamed for it? I'm going to blame you with it. I'm going to tell God what you did. <laughs> anyway, Galatians chapter 1. I'm, read, I'm going to read four verses to begin with. And after that, we'll, I'm going to have prayer and get into the message. In Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, 
The Bible said, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia, grace be to you in peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. With that, I want us to bow our heads now and pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the goings on here today. It's been a blessing already. Matter of fact, we can leave now and say we've been blessed, but we're down to the most important part of any service. And that is when the word of God is read and enlarged among the sense is given. And uh, Lord, I've been doing that most of my life. I'd like to do it the rest of my life. I especially would like to do that today. But I realize inherently I do not possess the ability to do that for I realize, Lord, that preaching is not merely a demonstration of the flesh. But it is a matter of declaring the word of God and the power and demonstration of the spirit of God. So Lord, would you breathe on the service, breathe on the sermon, breathe on thy servant. Help me to do what I love doing. And Lord, help me to do a good job of it. Help me to make the points well and help me to do it in good time. And oh God, would you crown the service with people coming forward and doing business with God. Should there be someone here this morning that isn't saved, I pray earnestly they would not leave here undone without Christ and on the road to hell. But they'd come forward during the invitation time at least and allow someone to take the Bible and guide them to Jesus, guide them to Christ. Help me love these people now as I preach to them as if I myself were their pastor. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. But we have an introduction. There are three things that provide somewhat of a backdrop for the message I want to preach this morning. First of all, there's Paul's ref reference to his recent visit to Galatia. And I don't know how long that had been, but evidently it had been too long. He did that in verse 8 when he said, But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Uh, Paul's first mission, by the way, his first expedition in his first mission journey, missionary journey, led him to a Roman province called Galatia. You remember how he was called in Acts 13, verse 2, As the minister to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereon to have called them. And when they fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And verse 4 said they departed into Seleucia and Pergamon and so forth eventually into that Roman province called Galatia. But preaching the gospel was Paul's reason for living. He had no other reason except to preach the gospel. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, he said it like this. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Listen, every gospel preacher ought to be able to say that. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. By the way, I feel that way about myself. I don't know if you notice this or not, but the gospel is mentioned 75 times in Paul's epistles, 12 in this book alone. Now, you may not know this, but Paul wrote 14 books in the New Testament, including Hebrews, and 100 chapters. 14 books, 100 chapters, and, and the, the gospel was a big thing in there. For instance, you remember what he said when he wrote to the Romans in Romans 1.14, I am dead both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. So much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that Rome also, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and salvation to everyone that believes it, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You know what he said to the Corinthians when he wrote back to them, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In 2 Corinthians 4, 5, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your servants. See, Paul, notice Paul's re recent, his reference to his recent visit there. Uh, and I, I need to tell you, the Judaizers did come in and subverted those impressionable young hearers, and the devil knows exactly how to pull that off. But notice, secondly, his reference to their problem. 
Jude answers came after Paul departed. And I said, I don't know how much space was involved in there. Evidently not too much. But they told these new converts that law had to be involved in your salvation. Well, you can't be saved by grace alone. You know, by the way, you can. Amen. But they didn't know that. Verse 6 and 7, he said, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him which called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that troubled you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. I mentioned a while ago some things that characterized Paul's writing. Grace is another one. Ninety-nine times in 14 epistles he mentions grace. Listen, you have to conclude Paul is a grace preacher, folks. Man, he made a big thing out of grace. Someone said, well, what is the definition of that word grace? Someone said it's God's riches at Christ's expense. That's an acrostic. Grace is an acrostic. Anyway, it is. Paul said in Romans eleven six, 6, If it be of grace, there's no more of work. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of work, there's no more of grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. You know what he's saying? You're saved by grace or works one, and it's not works. <laughs> Uh, somebody asked, so you're a Baptist. You, what, do you, what do you believe about works? Do works have anything to do with salvation? My question is this. Who are you referring to, us or him? Now, if you're referring to him, yes. We're saved because of his works. You're referring to us? Absolutely not. We didn't have to do any work, by the way. We couldn't have worked enough to get saved anyway. See, it was Paul that said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. How in the world can any believer anywhere not understand that works have nothing to do with salvation? It's right there. Amen. <laughs> uh, you know, the devil is a counterfeiter. And uh, he's a very proficient counterfeiter. He is not a creator. He is a counterfeiter. He has counterfeited everything God has. And that's salvation. See, the devil has a plan out there that's called the do plan. That means you do enough and hope your good deeds outweigh your bad ones when you face God. That's not, listen, that's not a very good premise to face God with. There's the done plan. And that's Christ has done it all. He did it all. Amen. <laughs> Paul disputes the teaching of those Judaizers in chapter 2, verse 16, when he said, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. We're justified by faith in Christ. Titus 3, 5, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. I think I've given you my take on that verse. That word, in, in, when, when, uh, when Paul is talking about uh, regeneration, it has the word gene in it. When you got saved, you got regened. That's why you can say, Our Father, which art in heaven, when you couldn't say it before. He is your Father now. That's why Jesus said, Call no man Father on this earth. He wasn't talking about your earthly Father. He's talking about in the spiritual sense. Don't call anybody Father down here because now I'm your Father. Thank God for our Father which is in heaven. Amen. But anyway, Paul disputes those Judaizers. I could give you some more scripture. I won't take time for that. But we notice his reference to his recent visit there. We notice his reference to their problem there. We notice also his reiteration of the gospel. It is defined as the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I like how Paul put that in verse 4, don't you? Who gave himself for our sins, he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. I like 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I deliver unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins and was buried, that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. 
By the way, if you ever, if you ever wonder why you get baptized in water, it's because you're exemplifying, you're giving a physical testimony that exemplifies a death, a burial, and a resurrection. You're saying to the world, I unashamedly identify with the Christ who died, was buried, and rose again. And like he died, was buried, and rose again. I'm exemplifying, I'm illustrating that. See, it doesn't save you folks. In the book of Acts, people got saved and baptized, not in order to be saved, but because they were saved. And as soon as they could after they got saved. I said that in a church recently out in Oklahoma. Somebody went to the preacher and said, Duh, I need to get baptized. Been, been saved and I've been following Jesus in baptism. First act of obedience. But anyway, for the message, there are several things expressed and implied in verse 4 that are involved in this death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. If you make your notes, write this down. He died willingly. Verse 4, who gave himself. You find that phrase more than once in Paul's epistles. Who gave himself. I like that. Matthew 26, 53 uh, kind of underscores that. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray unto my Father, and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. Jesus said that right on the threshold of being, uh, being uh, executed, being crucified. You know what he's saying? Hey, listen, fellas, I, I got in this for keeps. I'm going all the way through with it. But if I wanted to back out, I could pray my father and he would send 12 legions of angels. Now, folks, that means something. I looked up legion. It means as many as 6,000. We're talking about as many as 72,000 angels. Boy, those, those crucifying Christ, they better be glad Jesus didn't pray the Father to send those angels because I read in the Old Testament this week where one angel killed 185,000 Syrians with one swat. Man, if 72,000 angels showed up, they would have torn that hill apart. Amen. <laughs> well, angels have a lot of power, don't they? But anyway... The Bible said in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know what that verse says? He did it willingly. And not only that, you have other verses. I like John 10, 18. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down to myself. I have the power to lay it down now, the power to take it again. This commandment of our seed of my Father. You know what Jesus was saying? The, Listen, from God's point of view, you crucified him. Correction, correction, let me correct that. From God's point of view, he laid down his life. From man's point of view, you crucified him. <laughs> See, as far as man was concerned, we crucified Jesus. As far as God was concerned, he laid his life down. In other words, they couldn't have pulled it off had God not cooperated. I've often said this, they could have shot Jesus with a cannon in the halls of Pilate. It wouldn't have killed him because that wasn't what he was there for. They're not going to kill the Son of God. But notice his commission, what he was sent for. See, our redemption was not a last minute stopgap measure in God's part to save the race. I mean, it wasn't that man sinned and God said, oh no, what are we, what are we going to do now? The Bible said in 1 Peter 1, 20, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. In other words, God looked down through his telescope of time 
And he saw that the creature he would make in his own image and love above the beast of the field and the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea would lose that relationship, be powerless to restore that relationship, and that the creator must make a means and a way for the creature to be restored in relationship with the creator. And so God planned it in before Adam was ever created, before I'm ever, I'm ever sinned, before the human race lost its relationship with God. God programmed it in so that at a certain time down there, his son would come and sacrifice. Uh, sacrifice himself to make it possible for the man to know the relationship of his creator again. Aren't you glad you learned about that? <laughs> the Bible said in Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son made of woman made under the law. When the fullness of time has come. And uh, we all know John 3, 16, don't we? For God so loved the world. How about John 3, 17? For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Verse 18, he that believed on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Tell the Calvinists to put that in their pipe and smoke it. Amen. The Bible said in John 10, 10, the thief cometh not before to steal, to kill and destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. You know, God wants you to live. He doesn't want you just to live. He wants you to really live. Amen. I like how the Bible said in Matthew 20, 20, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life for many, as a ransom for many. That's why he came. If you're, you ever know why Jesus came to this world, he came so that you could have everlasting life. So your relationship with the Creator could be restored. We see his commission, what he was sent to do. We see his compassion, his love for sinners. See, the disciples asked Jesus probably the most unfair question he was ever asked in the book of Mark, in chapter 4, in verse 38, they're on this little boat out on the Sea of Galilee, and a terrible storm comes up. And uh, they're bailing out water as fast as they can, and, and things filling up. You know what Jesus was doing? He was taking a nap. Does that say anything to you? Listen, no ship ever went down with Jesus on board, nor will it ever. It tells you that he's not, out, he's not concerned about the outcome of this voyage. Amen. And they're, they're scared silly. Jesus is taking a nap. Anyway, one of the disciples woke him up. You know what he said? Curious thou not that we perish? The most unfair question Jesus was ever asked. If anybody in the universe cares, if no one else in the universe cares, Jesus does. You know why you're still sitting here today as an unsaved individual? Because God loves you enough that He sent His only begotten Son into this world to die in your place so that you through Him could be made just in the sight of Almighty God, a holy God. So preacher, I never thought about it like that. Think about that. Our redemption was not a last minute stop gap measure on God's part. His mission was completed. His compassion is made very obvious for God so loved the world. Have you ever noticed the Bible never defines exactly how much God loves sinners? You know why? There are not words in our vocabulary to do it. How about this one? Ephesians 2, 4. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love. Wherewith he loved sinners. Wherewith he loved us. Great is the highest word in our vocabulary, folks. And no dictionary properly defines the word great in my opinion. The best one I found is superior. But how superior are you talking about? The word great. God used that word, didn't he? Anyway, uh, the Bible said in Ephesians 2, 4, but God is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. We don't know how great that love is, folks. 
I'm going to tell you something. You've never met one person in this world that God wouldn't save if they would cooperate with him. That man that shot those nine people out in the mall in Texas last or yesterday, uh, now I think he's in eternity now, but God loved that man enough to die for him on the cross. God would have saved him if he had cooperated with the Lord. We see his commission. We see his compassion for sinners. Amen. As a matter of fact, the Bible said in John 15, 13, greater love hath no man than a man laid on his life for his friends. He's talking about the love of Christ. No greater love than that. No greater love. 1 Timothy 2, 6, who gave himself a ransom for many. There it is again. Titus 2, 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem a small iniquity and purifying himself of peculiar people. Anyway, notice our condition. We not only see his compassion, his commission, and so we see our condition. You see, the reason we need to be saved is because inherently we are corrupt. The Bible says so. Ecclesiastes 7.20, there's not a just man on earth that doeth good and sinneth not. The best people you've ever known in your life, I don't care how good your mothers and dads were, uh, they were sinners without, without hope until they trust Christ as Savior. We're all sinners. Romans 3.23 said, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We were not only corrupt, but we we're living under condemnation. May I say to you this morning, if you're not saved, you're not facing condemnation. You're already under it. So how do you know that? I got it down the Bible. You be, listen, you be encouraged to know I get nearly all my sermons out of the Bible. My best ones come out of the Bible. John 3, 18, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. See, if you've not been saved, that's where you are. You're right now under condemnation. If your heart stopped right now, you'd go to hell. But you don't have to. Thank God you don't have to. And uh, by the way, you never know when that's going to happen. Um, there was um, one church, they were having a great service. A lot of people got saved. A woman came forward, somebody led her to Christ. She wants to get baptized. She wants steps. The lead up to the baptistry had a heart attack and died at the base of the steps right after she trusted Christ as Savior. We don't know when that's going to happen, folks. I'll tell you, that my, uh, one of our dear friends, she's with the Lord now, fervent Christian lady, she was telling her daughter how to lead a woman to the Lord who was the daughter's mother-in-law. She's in the hospital and uh, she's unconscious as far as they knew, and, but, she wants, but she's dying and and uh, she wants to lead her to the Lord. And so this friend of ours told her daughter over the phone, here's what you do, told her to, to, through all the steps, you know, one after another, one after another. And uh, finally, she said, now, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, I want you to squeeze my hand twice. She squeezed her hand twice. Breathed one breath and died. Now, folks, as far as I'm concerned, that's close enough. But that could happen to you. Do you know that? You don't have any promise of anything beyond that. We're already condemned. See, and the, and the problem with that is we're completely helpless to change our condition. The Bible said in Romans 5, 6, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure of a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. <laughs> you see, we were helpless we couldn't lift ourselves. We were helpless. We couldn't cleanse ourselves. You know what the Bible said in Proverbs 20, verse 9, Who can say, I've made my heart clean? I'm pure for my sin. It's a rhetorical question that requires no answer because nobody can say that. <laughs> we're helpless to save ourselves. 
not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration. Notice He died willingly. Notice, secondly, He died sacrificially. Verse 4, who gave Himself for our sins. The Bible said in 1 Peter 2.24, who His own self bare our sins in His own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Grandel Moody told about a bridge tender. And a bridge tender in those days sat in a little booth up above the bridge over the river. And uh, when a ship came by, he was to work the livers and turn the rail bridge, this rail bridge for trains. He would turn that around, line it up with the river, and the ship could go through. Then he brings it back around, lines it up with the rail so the train can come through. About noon one day, his little boy, about two years old, was bringing his lunch to them to him. And uh, he's on the tracks. He's walking out to where, to where the booth is and so he could take the lunch up to his dad. But in the meantime, there's a passenger train coming bearing down on the bridge. And the dad had to make a split-second decision. Am I going to save my boy's life and shift this bridge around and sacrifice the lives of those people on that train? Or am I going to leave the bridge in place and uh, lose my son? He made the decision God made a long time ago. He sacrificed his son so the train could breeze through safely and all the lives be preserved on the train. Listen, that's what God did for you. Am I? In a sense, God looked the other way while Jesus was being crucified. Two things involved in dying sacrificially. It involved his broken body. Dying on the cross was not an easy way to go, folks. They didn't, give, they didn't give sedatives, you know, so you would be unconscious at the time you left. Nothing like that. The Bible said in Isaiah 53 and verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his traps we healed all. We like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He brought, he, and he's brought forth as a lamb without blemish. Without, he's brought forth to suffer like a lamb that's going to die. And I, I didn't get that verse exactly right. Maybe I'll get it later. But you know what the Bible said in verse 10 of that chapter? Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. To put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Jesus Christ, God the Father sacrificed his son on a cruel, painful, humiliating cross so that you could be saved. How could you leave here without trusting that Christ is your Savior? How could you do that? You know what hell is going to be all about? It's going to be God's wrath poured out on a Christ-rejecting race. That's what hell's about. You don't want the wrath of God. It involves His broken body. It involves His bloodshed. The Bible said in 1 Peter 1, 18, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things of silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. <laughs> Revelation 1, 5, And him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. You tell these people that it's not the blood of Christ to read that verse. God thinks it is, and he's been right every time so far. <laughs> See, a sacrifice shed its blood in the process of its death. That's what Jesus did. He shed his blood in the process of his death. Just like an Old Testament lamb would shed its blood in the process of its death. You can't separate those. Notice he died willingly. He died sacrificially. He also died obediently. Look at verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver, he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. There it is again. 
I like Luke 22, 42 and saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Nevertheless, thy will be done. It's okay for you to say, Father, if you'd do this for me, I'd sure appreciate it. It'd be a help to us and a blessing to us. But if, you, if it's not your will, it's okay. That's what Jesus was saying. It's all right to express your desire to the Father in heaven as long as you put on the end of it, uh, if it be thy will. Amen. If it be thy will. I heard about a fellow one time standing beside the road out in this rural area. His neighbor came up the road herding a group of hogs along. I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going down to the market and sell these hogs. His neighbor said, you mean you're going to sell the hogs if the Lord's willing? He said, no, God has nothing to do with this. I'm going to sell my hogs. A little while later, the guy came back up the road and obviously he'd been beat up, didn't have his hogs with him. He said, what happened? He said, well, I went over the hill and around the curve and the ruffians came out and stole my hogs and beat me up. He said, what are you going to do now? He said, I'm going home if the Lord's willing. <laughs> you better put that on the end of your praying, folks. Two things to be impressed with here. It was the plan of God. I said earlier, it was not a stopgap measure that God came up with at the last minute. It was His plan all along that Jesus suffer and bleed and die in your place so that you could be saved. John 6, 40, This is the will of Him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on Him may have everlasting life. And I'll raise Him up at the last day. That's what verse 4 is telling us, isn't it? Galatians 1, 4, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. See, that plan, let me say three things about that. It was foreordained, it was foretold, and it was fulfilled. Foreordained, I've already covered that, haven't I? Uh, 1 Peter 1, 20, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. It was foretold by the Old Testament writers. You know what Peter said in Acts chapter 10, verse 4 to 3? To him give all the prophets witness. You know what he's saying? Every one of those prophets back there wrote and talked about Jesus Christ, although they might not have used the word in every case. It was foreordained. It was foretold as far back as Genesis 3.15. And it was fulfilled. John 1.29, the next day John saw Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And by the way, he had no reservation about that. It was the purpose of Christ, John 6, 38 said, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Jesus came down for one purpose. It wasn't to run for public office. It wasn't for any other purpose except this, to be a sacrifice and die for your sins so you could be saved and go to heaven. There was no other purpose involved. And the Bible said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Let this mind be in you also which was in Christ Jesus, and who made himself a more reputation, but took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashions, man, he owned himself unto death, even the death of the cross. He came down to die on a cross. And listen, dying on a cross was the most humiliating and the most painful thing, uh, way a person could die. You know, the Romans had five different methods of capital punishment. They could drown you. They could run you through the sword. They could burn you to death. Uh, they could strangle you to death. If you were a terrible, terrible criminal, they could crucify you. See, those three crosses on God got those hill, folks, are not the only crosses that ever existed. The Romans had lots of crosses. They crucified lots of people. 
but they didn't have any significance theologically, but the one on God got the seal did. But notice, he died willingly, he died sacrificially, he died obediently, he died shamefully. Verse 4, who gave himself, uh, chapter 3, verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Curses everyone, curses everyone that hangeth upon a tree. Jesus went through humiliating, a humiliating death. See, there was a stigma attached to a person who died on the cross. There was a stigma to the family that was left behind when one of their loved ones died on the cross. It was humiliating, terrible humiliation. He died a shameful death. The cross was reserved and regarded as a reproach. Moses referred to that in Hebrews eleven twenty six, 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Moses realized serving Christ, there's a reproach there. By the way, there is in our world too. Uh, if you're really an, a Christian, I'm talking about a real Christian in this world today, uh, it's a reproach out there. And uh, you're going to be vilified and so forth. But listen, cross is regarded as a reproach. It was regarded as a shame, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 said, enduring the cross, despising the shame, and it's set down at the right hand of the throne of God. It was reserved for the vilest, most... Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that Jesus Christ... He never broke one law, man's law or God's law. He never stepped out of the path of obedience one time, died as if he were the most horrible criminal in the land. Could it be that Jesus died as being a horrible sinner, horrible criminal, so the horrible criminals could be saved and justified through him before God in heaven? Could it be? I thought about that. Anyway, the implication, he became sin for us, according to 1 Peter 2.24. Let me just put it like this. He came down so that we could go up. He became the son of man so that we could become sons of God. He was afflicted so that we could be healed. He was made poor so that we could be rich. He, was, he became sin so that we could become righteous. He died so that we could live. I tell you, you're not going to get a better deal than this, folks. We've come out on the good end of this. All because of Jesus. I said that cross is regarded as a curse. Galatians 3.13 tells us that. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed everyone that hangeth on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21 said, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. So preacher, I'd like, I'd like to experience that. You can if you'll come trust Christ. Listen, if you're lost, I can't even imagine you wanting to walk through those doors back there without knowing Jesus Christ. I can't imagine that. Notice, he died willingly, sacrificially, obediently, shamefully. Got to say this, he died innocently. Verse 4, he gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. Two things to note here. He was innocent. The Bible said in John eight forty six, in his words, which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? You know what it did? It shut their mouths. Because they had no awe against him. They had nothing they could say about Jesus. Nothing. And they never did. Even old Pilate, who had to give the final word. Second, excuse me, Luke uh, 23 and verse 4. I find no fault in this man. Now you have to understand that it was in Pilate's best interest to find fault with Jesus in order to justify what he knew he had to do, he had to condemn Jesus in order to avoid an insurrection in his jurisdiction. 
And it was really in his best interest to find some reason to justify that. But listen, he went over Jesus carefully. They questioned him extensively. And they found no fault. Luke 23, 15. I sent you down to Pilate. He checked him out. He found nothing worthy of death either. By the way, I'm with Pilate and Herod on this. <laughs> sent him down to Herod. Did I say Pilate? I meant to say Herod. But in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For you have made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. The Bible said. Hebrews 4, 15. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 7, 26. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. I've trusted my eternity to that Lord Jesus Christ. I recommend you do it. Amen. He had to be innocent in order to die for our sins. Had he been a sinner, he could not have died for our sins. Notice he died willingly and sacrificially and obediently. He died shamefully and innocently. He died painfully. One of the, one, some of the lyrics in one of our hymns go like this. None of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed and how dark was the night that the Lord passed through ere he found a sheep that was lost. We read about the crucifixion of Christ. We read about all the suffering that he went through. We still didn't get it. We can't really fathom it. We really can't get hold of the suffering that Jesus went through in order for us to be saved. I tell you, it's humbling. The more I think about that, the more it humbles me. None of us have ever suffered like Jesus did. You know what the Bible said in Isaiah 52, 14, as many were stunned at thee, for his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. That means he suffered every bruise the body could sustain. I'm talking about lacerations, incisions, contusions, abrasions. I mean, you name it. Jesus suffered all of it. The Romans had five different forms of capital punishment, and they could use whichever one they chose. Notice lastly, he died substitutionally. Verse 4 again, who gave himself for our sins. That's in our place. That he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Do you know God's will was not for anyone to go to hell? Do you know that hell has gone through an enlargement program? You read the Old Testament. Heaven hasn't. You can tell all your friends there's still plenty of room in heaven. But hell got crowded and God had to make it bigger. I think because he didn't plan for any of us to go there. I, uh, I read about King Alfonso who was a king in the capital of Spain many years ago, and the Muslims laid siege to the capital. And uh, somehow or another, uh, the Muslims were able to uh, capture the king's son. And so they built a scaffold out here where everybody in town could see it from the wall. And they put the king's son on that scaffold and said, it's your son or your city. And the people in the city were very apprehensive as to what their king might do, King Alfonso. But they didn't have to wait long. King Alfonso sent a message back. Said, you can go ahead and kill my son so that my people can live. You know what? That's what God did. He let his son be killed in your place so that you could live because he died. I want to, you've been a good audience. I want you to stand. I could go on with this. I don't need to do that. But I'm talking to you about a Savior who died willingly, sacrificially, obediently, shamefully, innocently, and painfully. While they come to the music instruments, 
and our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. You've listened well, and I appreciate it. And I don't know your hearts, not any of you. But I'd have to, I'd have to assume that in a crowd this size, there are some of you out there that do not know that if you died today, you'd go to heaven. I'm here to tell you that you can know that. I'm, telling you, I'm here to tell you you can know that you're going to heaven. If you come down this aisle and let somebody take the Bible and show you the way to Jesus, you can know that before you leave here today. Father in heaven, I pray that as we have this invitation time, after I preach Christ to this crowd, that there wouldn't be one person leave here this morning not knowing Jesus Christ personally because they can. Lord, help those that want to be saved to have the courage to slip out from where they are. Walk down the aisle while heads are bowed and eyes are closed and say, yes, I'd like to trust Christ as my Savior. God, help them to have the courage to do that right now. By the way, I remember when I stood where you're standing. I remember standing there wanting to go forward real bad. I wanted to go forward real bad. But I didn't have the courage to do it. And I hoped that somebody would come put their arm around my shoulder and say, I'll walk with you. Let's go. Nobody ever did that. I got saved when I was 15 years old. I would have gotten saved when I was 9 or 10, maybe maybe 8 or 9 or 10, somewhere there, if someone had shown some direct interest. But they didn't. But there are people that are interested in you this morning. Jesus more than anyone else. But if you'd come forward, I promise you. You say, preacher, what if I come forward and I ask the Lord to save me and he doesn't do it? Let me assure you, that has never happened. It never will happen. God wants to save you a thousand times more than you want to be saved. He has never turned anyone away that wanted to be saved. Him that cometh to me, I'll in no wise cast out, Jesus said. While folks are gathered here in the altar praying, if God's spoken to your heart, would you slip out from where you are and meet someone down here? Maybe you as a Christian need to come down here and pray for some people that you know are lost. Now, the reason I say that is because I believe there are some people living right now because God knows some people are praying for their salvation. God wants them to be saved too. And God's letting them live because someone's praying for them and calling their name before God. The service will be over shortly, folks. This service will be history right away. It'll be history right away. When this service ends and the last amen is said, is it going to leave you undone without Christ? Are you going to be able to leave here and say, I'm so glad I trusted Jesus as my Savior today? Would you come and trust Him as your Savior? Would you do that? We have time for that. We have time for that. We have time for that. Maybe you need to join the church. Maybe you need to get baptized as a saved individual. I'm not the pastor, but he's here. He'll know how to deal with that if you come forward. People are still coming forward. People are still praying. We are not in a big hurry, folks. Matter of fact, this is going to be the earliest I've gotten a service over with in a long time. It's not even noon yet. I don't know if it's maybe a sin to get out before noon. I don't know. If you're in the altar, you can stay as long as you like. Go back to your seat when you're ready. <laughs>